Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. I am Khalid. I am a master's student at the University of Oxford. And today I'm delighted to have with us a very special guest, Professor Francesca Orsini. And we will be talking about her 2023 book, East of Delhi, Multilingual Literary Culture and World Literature, published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Professor Orsini is Professor Emerita of Hindi and South Asian Literature at SOAS, University of London. Uh, the breadth of her scholarship spans a time period from uh, the early modern era to contemporary times. She has written extensively on the print culture in North India, the Hindi public sphere, on early Hindi literature, on decolonization and the ideology of form, uh, and, and has of late been working on world literature as well of which this book is uh, one product. Uh, first of all, Professor Orsini, a very warm welcome to you on this podcast. Thank you very much, Khalid. Delighted to be here. Uh, Professor Orsini, why don't we start this by uh, you telling us something about yourself, your research interests, and, and how did you come to write this book? So this is my third monograph, believe it or not, in uh, <laughs> uh, almost uh, 30 years. So it's not exactly, and it's a work uh, that took me the best part, I think, almost 20 years, actually, to write. Um, it's a, it's a, Because it's multilingual, because it covers a long period, I was doing other things at the same time, but uh, it's a, it's been a slow burn. Uh, I actually come from my, my first undergraduate degree was in, in Hindi, and we did a lot of 1950s, 1960s Naikahani writers. Mm. So when I, after that, I was keen to explore more. And my first book, um, The Hindi Public Sphere, was really an attempt to do a kind of cultural, um, social history of Hindi literature in the early 20th century. I worked a lot with magazines and literary associations. And then I discovered that the kind of should Hindi be that a modern, um, sort of a modern process. Mm -hmm. And so then I was keen to discover what was there before. And as you said, I worked first on the multilingual print culture of, 19th century, of the 19th century, commercial print culture with Hindi and Urdu. And then um, it seemed to me that underlying the, the Shud Hindi, and also pure Hindi Sanskar is, as we know very well from contemporary India now, right now, but also from the early 20th century, a kind of a a view of uh, history and of and of the Hindi Hindu community within it, which saw everything that had to do with Persian, Urdu, you know, Muslims as inevitably foreign and alien. So I thought that um, if, uh, in fact, instead, uh, North Indian society and literary culture were multilingual and actually people were familiar with several idioms and, and traditions and so on. But the literary histories were written in very monolingual and monocultural ways. Uh, one really had to kind of, in a way, start at the beginning. Uh, so from the early, you know, important works in Hindi, interestingly written by Sufi poets, uh, Sufi Muslim poets, um, to uh, rethink and and rethink uh, the, the historical narrative underpinning Hindi literature, um, as well as to rethink Hindi literature in ways that were more suited and um, 
you know, treated more the kind of multilingual society of which literature was a was part and was a product. Uh, I'm glad you brought up uh, Sufis and and the context of Muslims and Hindus and languages being ascribed to these communities on ethno uh, religious terms uh, because you begin the book with a with a very interesting story about the translation of uh, Malik Muhammad Jayasi's Padmavat into French, but na- that not becoming a part of world literature, even though that happens in, I believe, the 19th century or something. Uh, so the the concept of world literature is kind of very central to this book. So if you'd like to tell us a bit about world, world, what world literature is and what are your criticisms and your interventions and and what approaches do you have to deal with that? Yes, so I mean, world literature, um, I mean, there are many, many ideas of world literature and approaches to world literature. So there's, I think, an enduring sense of world literature as being, you know, the best Mm. literature of all the world. And that I think um, remains in a kind of common sense idea of what is world literature. But world literature as a kind of discipline has been, or a field, is re- has really resurfaced or redeveloped or been re-energized by people like Pascal Casanova, a French scholar who died, unfortunately, very young, and uh, David Ramrosh at Harvard, um, as the kind of comparative literature for the global age. So the idea that, you know, the discipline of comparative literature has very European uh, roots. Um, it's, in fact, based on this idea of transcending national literatures. So comparative literature is that which is not national. And by saying it's, it's that that goes beyond, in fact, it reinscribes the idea that there are national literatures in individual languages. So Italian literature or German literature or Danish literature. Um, and then the problem became, or for me um, and people like me who come from different parts of the world, is that uh, when uh, people like um, Pascal Casanova, David Damrosch, Franco Moretti, who was one of the early theorists, you know, tried to say, okay, now we have to do, now comparative literature has to be world literature, it can't be just literature in European languages. What they did was try to immediately try to manage it, to say, oh, it can't be the whole of world literature, however. So, you know, to try and immediately say, oh, this is world literature, this is not. So to define it, but also to manage it in models um, borrowed from the social sciences. So whether it's um, Emmanuel Wallerstein's model of, you know, world system theories with center, peripheries, semi-peripheries, or um, uh, Pierre Bourdieu's idea of literary field writ large. And the problem is that then a, a kind of a, the promise of world literature, which is that to open up and be interested in the whole world, becomes actually closes down very quickly because then everything that is not European or in European languages becomes immediately peripheral or semi-peripheral. Um, caught in a kind of um, catching up and uh, you know uh, diffusionist models of the world, or 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 else uh, you know that which is written in Vietnamese or Indonesian does not circulate so widely, so it cannot be world literature. So my intervention um, in this book, which in fact uh, I had great difficulties in placing as a world literature oh. book, you know, I tried uh, actually non-South Asian 
um, series. And I tried to say, although this book deals with not literature, is actually a book about also book about literature. And and publishers and editors would say, no, this is a book about you know a region. It's not the world because world yeah. literature people have the sense of you know the transnational trans you know global circulation. But in fact, my under you know. One of my strong arguments in this book is that there isn't one world literature, there isn't one world literary system, but world literature actually looks very different from different locations, and which can be geographical locations, ideological locations, locations of genre, locations of affiliation. So then, um, in, you know, it's not that, oh, we need more work before we can arrive at one world literature, but actually I much prefer Debjani Ganguly's um, definition of world literature, which is world literature is an optics and a ground for conversations. So rather than, okay, certain works or certain authors, of course, appear, no, they've already gained this stature and wide recognition, but actually world literature allows us as we do, in fact, in our um, in the series that we co-edit on Cambridge Studies in World Literature, World Literature can be a conversation between Persian and Arabic poetic modernisms, or um, another book by Duncan Yoon on you know China in African literature. So it's a kind of it doesn't have to be the whole world. It doesn't have to be even works that everybody knows, because in fact that would be kind of boring if uh, you know World Literature were just what we already know. Um, what is there, what's the excitement, what is there to discover, but really more in optics, trying to find different ways of doing world literature. So my gamble in East of Delhi is to say, okay, um, if most of the, of the approaches to world literature have been this kind of systemic top-down approaches, what does world literature, how, how is doing world literature, which is to be aware of circulation of different scales or different, the multiplicity of, uh, of um, yeah, of tastes and uh, and scales of literature. How does it? What what does it mean to do it from a particular location, mm. and from a particular location that is um, also um, not that of not a particularly you know Im or one that one would immediately recognize as cosmopolitan. Mm. So, you know, if, of course, if you talk about, you know, the big uh, courtly centers or the big courts or, say, port cities or, you know, big hubs, oh. of course, again, um, you know, world literature in terms of circulation of people, of books, becomes more easy to, uh, to imagine uh, and perhaps to trace. But what does it mean to do world literature from, um, from a region that is actually, that doesn't have an imperial center that is kind of scattered in, you know, small towns and uh, and a countryside um, over over a long a long period. Uh, yeah. So the the multilingual and located approach that you talk about that uh, really seems to come out in your choice of centering Purab or Avad in your study. So would you like to talk a bit about that approach and why did you choose Avad as the case study? Yes. So as I said, located, because I think every approach to world literature is located. 
So, um, and um, you know, one of the one of the notions that I use is that, in fact, of the multilingual local. And in local, it's not for me a particular scale, you know, a small town or a city or so on. But it's really this kind of the idea of a of a location, and multilingual, partly because that's the reality there on the ground. If you take this area, which corresponds to current eastern Uttar Pradesh. Uh, or, and was called you know, Purab, and the people there were Purbias, or um, and then um, becomes known. I mean, Avad was the name of uh, Ayodhya, you know, the, the sort of medieval name mm. of the city of Ayodhya, and was already a kind of province. And so, the area in Mughal terms, the area that I talk about is really two two provinces, two suvas of Avad, so Ayodhya and Allahabad. And so they, they are my Purab. And there you have Persian, you have what later gets called Avadi at the time, it's just called Hindavi or Bhaka or language. You've got Sanskrit, you've, um, you've got the Sant mixed language. So you've got, you know, it is a multilingual local. But my contention and the contention of the, of the project that I led, which was called Multilingual significant, uh, Locals and Significant Geographies, uh, at SOAS for five years, was that in fact, um, you know, basically tell me, you know, show me one region of the world that is not multilingual. So uh, multilingualism is not, you know, an, a, a particular, um, you know, unusual or unique feature of either this region or, you know, India as a whole, but, you know, Italy is multilingual. Britain is multilingual, France is multilingual, you know, um, if you start, you know, if you start um, um, going beyond the national language and take, for example, you know, Bolis, you know, uh, spoken languages or um, the sort of like other languages that one has been, you know, learnt and still learns at school or the languages of um, minorities, then actually, um, my contention in this book that a located and multilingual approach is useful for discovering, you know, the variety and the life of literature, um, not just in, in Purab and in North India, but basically anywhere. So, uh, you know, I hope that people will be inspired. And in fact, of course, there, there exist studies of, um, you know, multilingual literary cultures in I don't know, Eastern Europe, in Latin America, you know. So the idea is that this is in North America, even multilingual American literature. So this is actually quite a, you know, not, not unusual, but rather common phenomenon. And But because literary history is usually studied according to language, this is an approach, an attempt to say, okay, how can we write a literary history that is multilingual, that takes multilingualism as um, a kind of structuring structure, as Brad Boudier would say, of society and of literature. One way of doing that uh, in the book that you propose is uh, following a genre through history or writing a literary history of a genre in a way. And you choose the Katha genre and uh, kind of show how the Katha genre is traveling across languages, scripts, communities, uh, and how 
writers and poets are intervening very confidently in the local world without these texts reaching distant readers as you know someone like david damrosh expect it to be to qualify for it to be world literature in the first place so could you tell us a bit about this on what does following this uh, through history tell us about world literature yes so katha is a very generic term for a story no katha kehna from uh, um, and the reason why i use it you know is to um, uh, to sort of um, you well first use an emic term so you a term that has actually is used in the text but also to as you say to uh, bring together texts that otherwise would be considered as belonging to different groups or different traditions um of different languages um because we are endlessly surprised that people oh how can you know how can this persian intellectuals be aware of this hindi story or how can you know uh brajbasha writers know about this persian tale um, and actually i think if instead we think of and the katha genre of course like songs like that most other genres uh, in the early modern period was what um uh, narayana rao calls an oral literature genre so a genre that we you know was copied in text but also recited or performed uh, so people would hear it uh, and would and people would hear it who would not necessarily know how to read the text in that particular script and in fact one of the consequences is that we see text copied in multiple scripts because you know uh the text itself is the same but depending on the script that the patron of the copy was familiar with or the copies was familiar with we find the same padmavat written in uh, persian script or in uh, kethi script or in nagari script um now in modern literary histories um uh, someone like uh, you know the, the key hindi uh, literary scholar Uh, and historian Ramchandra Shukla coined the term premakyan so romance which is a calc for romance so a love story uh, and used it particularly for the sufi kathas which call themselves actually prem kathas prem kathas you know love stories and by doing that in his uh, hindi saitik atihas in the literary history he actually divided uh, the um, kathas like say um jain kathas or you know hindu kathas or um take a a katha like the ramcharitmanas which also calls itself no a ram katha or a krishna katha from this premakyan which were written by sufis which were not completely indian as he said so for me going actually back to using the term katha that you find in the text is the way instead of showing that uh, um as we can see in um, uh, in padmavat somebody like uh, its authors uh, malik mohammad jaisi was clearly aware and very familiar with the ramayana story uh, so you know for him whether of course not tulsi's uh, story but in some other form of ram katha or krishna krishna katha he wrote himself a krishna katha called kanhavat were you know familiar he must have heard them uh, around and then then the story um 
and, and, and following the story means that you can actually see how different authors for different groups or communities of taste retell the story in their own way and as I say, call, say inflect it in particular ways. So they can, for example, if you are a Persian writer of a Ramayana story, I mean, how are you going to write about Ram? How are you going to write about Sita? You've got various possibilities. You can make them more human, you can make them more heroic, you can make them less heroic, you can make them more divine, less divine. So, um, I think that this idea of retelling, which of course we have already from uh, Eke Ramanujans, you know, um, 300 Ramayanas, you know, it's not a new story, in a way, no, no, not a new approach, but it's this idea of, of saying that people will have been, uh, I mean, you can see in the text their awareness with a whole range of stories, not just in the language that they write in, uh, and then you can become interested in instead the particular uh, textual and generic features that they remold the story in. So that, for example, in the 19th century, as you know, there's a, a great uh, PhD, for example, on Urdu Ramayans. Mm. Now, interestingly, you know, 19th century writers of Urdu Ramayans can either have or, or maybe both have the Sanskrit, the Hindi Ramayan, or the Persian Ramayans as their source. And actually you can see how they're kind of bringing together, choosing, selecting uh, what elements, uh, what um, stylistic elements, what kind of narrative elements, uh, what ideological elements they want to bring in their story. You know, the earliest Hindi Shakuntala is actually, you know, comes from Braj that is aware of the Persian Shakuntala. Mm -hmm as well as the Sanskrit one. So, you know, that's following also shows us the reworking, but also the, yeah, the kind of the multi-layered, the multilingual mm -hmm. world in which these, of which these texts are part, rather than, again, you know, separate traditions, separate language traditions. Uh, Professor Ossini, uh, this, um awareness about uh, different stories, different traditions in these writers and in these works uh, is exhibited uh, also in the Sant poets who you write about uh, and you call that process ventriloquism which is, uh, if I am correct, a way to channel different metaphors and, and different, sort of, different sorts of uh, stories while giving performances in a way uh, and there and sun poetry is important to you in this book because they are very largely performative and oral and the oral is usually excluded from world literature because it is not written down so you also make a case for making world literature oral in a way to extend its uh, conceptual limits so would you uh, like to talk a bit yes. about that Yes, so, I mean, if we think of some poets, I mean, I think everybody's familiar with Kabir yeah. and maybe Namdev, so the big names. But actually in this book, um, I focus on the kind of more local ones, uh, like Maluk Das or Paltu Das. And uh, what you find is that they are, what I call ventriloquizing is that they 
they show uh, so as if they are speaking in different voices. So they they speak in the voice of uh, you know they use women's song, they use uh, seasonal songs, they use swing songs, chulna songs, they use holy songs, they use um, kind of Sufi um, um, Sufi idioms. They use even uh, uh, kind of quasi Persian, as I say, you know. So, uh, so they use. Uh, in, in linguistic terms, um, they don't use Persian meters, but they they use Persian phrases and uh, in a way like you would do English today. Uh, so you would not necessarily use the whole English or use English meters, but you use, use English words and phrases. So, um, of course, I don't know exactly why they're doing it. You know, mine is just a, a speculation, but... Um, a certain variety, of course, you find in a lot of poets of this time. Again, think of Tulsidas, you know, he does also, he does, you know, he works in different meters and, uh, um, and, um, and he, he clearly, you know, enjoys showing that he can do a Ramayan in Kabit form, in, uh, um, Barvai or in, um, in not not him but in Chopai um, Doha uh, and so on. But uh, what I find in the sense that in a way that's kind of multiplied and uh, um, and it seems like my interpretation, at least for Malukdas or Paltudas, is partly a kind of communicative one that you know. I'm going to talk to you about um, the sort of mystical realities or the practice that is needed or the values that are needed. But I'm going to talk to, you know, I'm going to present them to you in, uh, in forms, in song forms, poetic forms that you are already familiar with, in metaphors drawn from the every, from professions, from, you know, kind of stories and emotions that you're already familiar with. And I'm going to stamp put my stamp uh, on them, however. So often what you see is that uh, a sun song at the end will have, you know, it's the, will have the twist. So this seems to be a whole sort, say, uh, weaving or a whole song about um, pining for your uh, absent husband. But in the last line, I'm going to say, but actually, you know, the true one is your beloved and he's always with you or something like that. Um, now, what I find interesting from the point of view of world literature, as you say, is that typically world literature, because it comes from this idea of, you know, written text, often printed, wide range in circulation, um, thinks of uh, circulation only in terms of translation. So, you know, that which circulates is the, um, so in world literature, because world literature always thinks in terms of texts and printed texts and the circulation of printed texts across languages uh, in, in, from the point of view of world literature can only happen through translation. I think that for me, um, both Katas and Sand poetry are a very good example of the circulation of tastes and of stories and of metaphors topoi and so on, not necessarily through translation, what I call a kind of poetic traffic without translation, which explains why up to the 19th century, 20th century, even now, 
and, and in fact, um, later Parsi theatre and then film pick up on this, you know, variety and circulation without translation that even people who are not, you know, uh, formally educated in different languages or different poetic idioms immediately understand a Sufi idiom, a Sant idiom, a Bhakti idiom, um, because, you know, they have access through it, through oral, uh, through a lot of it, through songs, in fact. And uh... and I think this is, again, this again, I think this is not just true of India. Yeah. I'm sure that, you know, if one were to look in, you know, other parts of the world, our, our, our literary tastes are not just built on books. That's what I mean, want to say. And I think world literature will to uh, become more, you know, open open to to songs, for example, or to, uh, yeah, access to, um, how do we access, our, how do we get, how do we gain our literary tastes and how do they become part of our bodies? Uh, so, Professor Orsini, one reason why um, Sant songs or Sant poetry is so important for world literature is because it also brings to the fore an element of anti-caste sentiment, which is quite prominent in at least some of these poets' works. So, could you talk a bit about that? Yes, uh, I mean, Sant poetry, so the poetry of... Um... Um, devotees and uh, actually saints is a really nice term because it comes close to a saint and so they are poets and saints they are themselves become of, of devotion or uh, in fact leaders of uh, new communities um, and some of them the most famous one if you think of Kabir or Guru Nanak certainly are in a way already part of our literature in terms of the, their fame Many times they've been uh, they've been translated and they're yeah kind of a worldwide circulation you could say, but as you say, sons are also important for world literature from my perspective, in other ways. Um, for what I say, they kind of stamp the everyday, so they take any kind of uh, of uh, available poetic and song form around and they kind of twist it at the end and one of these ways one of their one of their one of their topics you could say or one of their concerns is in fact uh, the fact that it's devotion and uh, you know a pure heart a heart full of longing a heart full of bhakti uh, that is what matters and not and not um, divisions of high and low or divisions of gender or in fact divisions of caste. So caste is actually, if one looks, is not necessarily a very large proportion of, uh, mm. of, their, of their songs and of their oeuvre. Uh, even for those who are like Ravidas in North India, you know, born in the lowest caste. But they are important because A, they they talk about it uh, and they critique caste, they critique uh, the whole idea that, you know, somebody should not be touched or that somebody is polluting because of the, you know, of their birth and because of the profession they do. But also, I think there's another uh, aspect to it, which is that particularly sun poetry, and not just because of caste, but certainly also because of that, become 
a very important um, themselves be kind of kind of space for critique and for self-definition uh, and self-assertion mm. for a lot of low-caste devotees themselves, men and women, young and old, illiterate a lot of the times. And in fact, um, as the um, anecdote of Nirala and Chaturi the cobbler that mm. I quote uh, shows that they're not just... Uh, um, they're not just um, Ophir, they're not just, they don't just understand the message, but sound poetry and sound songs become a way uh, of uh, um, acquiring uh, and then being able to transmit very deep knowledge and very, and, and also a kind of an aesthetic, an aesthetic made of, of images, of, um, you know, sound play, of, a particular construction of songs that you find and of poems that you find in sun songs and not in other poetry around them. So it's not just because of their popularity and circulation, but also because they are, uh, you know, they are, they, they are uh, important for a very wide community of taste, which is, which again uh, shows that literature is not just about, you know, uh, refinement, but it's about also emotion and refinement in this kind, religious emotion and cultivation of of the self and of sensibility and of a sense of community. Yeah, Professor Osini, uh, you pointed out in the book somewhere that this cross-fertilization between different poetic idioms is like a really defining feature of sun poetry. But if we look at what was going on in the Kasbas, as you talk in one of the chapters in your book, uh, where you have um, local patronage networks kind of trying to imitate the imperial, the Mughal sort of patronage networks in, in bigger imperial cities. Uh, but here in Kasbas of Awadh, uh, you see that there are um, literary traditions, um, in Persian or Hindi or Brajbhasha existing in parallel. So even though Avad in let's say the 16th or the 17th centuries is multilingual, the poets working in these languages are multilingual, but we do not see that kind of uh, cross-fertilization between different traditions. Why is that? Why is that happening? Yes, for me, the question of, okay, this is a multilingual society, as you say, people are multilingual, spaces are multilingual, then why is it that certain poets uh, mix idioms and, mm -hmm. and languages and some don't? Uh, and rather mm -hmm. than thinking it in terms of, uh, you know, rather than jumping to uh, a general answer, I have been really thinking, and, and of course, these are just hypotheses of, of why one choice or another now, in the context of the kind of sophisticated or cultivated, you could say, um, poet, poet scholars of the Qasbas, as you, as you say, whether they are Muslims or Hindu, um, and who learn Persian and uh, Rajbasha, some learn Sanskrit, some learn, you know, um, Arabic, Arabic. It seems to me that... Um, even when we know and when they say that they uh, learnt and cultivated one of the and enjoyed more than one language and more than one language tradition, 
<clears throat> the premium was on mastery, on showing the mastery of that of each poetic code. So in a way, mixing was not, um, you know, was not conducive to their aim. If their aim was to show that, look, I can, I, a Persian educated, you know, Muslim soldier, but also man of the pen from the Kasbah of Bilgram, I can do Persian poetry very well, but I can also do Brajvasha poetry completely well, so that I'm recognized as a master. And I'm recognized as a master in a way that modern Hindi scholars say, oh, you don't even see that he's a Muslim. You don't see, mm. you know, he's he's like uh, any other Brajvasha poet. And the same as, in fact, um, Rajiv Kindra has shown for Chandrabhan uh, Brahman, the same, you know, he's, he wants to show that he's a Persian poet, like all the best Persian poets. He's not mixing mm. any any Hindi in it. Um, and it's quite interesting in a way that I think some of the patrons do. Uh, um, so, um, um, Khane Khanan, Abdurrahim Khane Khanan famously does and famously, you know, shows that he can write in different, um, in different languages. But it seems that the poets, uh, particularly if they become kind of professional poets, court, courtiers, they will specialize. They will know more than one language often, but they will specialize in one and will not mix. Whereas I think, I mean, and again, this is a hypothesis. Um, if I think of a saint like Maluk Das in the Kasbah of Kara, which mm. is, you know, dotted with Sufi shrines, Sufi uh, establishments, uh, is a Muslim majority, Kasbah, you know, the fact mm. that he... Uh, he can do he can do women's songs, he can do swing songs, <clears throat> spring songs, he can do holy songs, he can also do Sufi type songs. That is a way, in a way, a kind of um, cultural translation, you could say, or cultural religious translation that Sufis themselves were doing. So you see the the mixing and the translating of, of ideas and of images going on both ways. Hmm. And and towards the end of that chapter, you kind of caution us against not seeing this. Uh, of course, this is when Urdu kind of replaces Braj Bhasha in a way, at least in uh, at least in how literary historiography about this period is written. It is. Uh, perceived to have replaced Braj Bhasha in a way uh, in the 18th century. And then there is the other side of this where we see this, the coexistence of different languages as uh, popularized by the phrase, you know, Ganga, Jamuni, Tehzeeb, like a pre-lapsarian, pre-colonial whole. Uh, and you caution us against both these approaches. So how is it that we are to proceed in 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 this case. Yes, so in the first case, I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, I think if you talk to anybody and say, what what is for you the culture of Avad, they will only think or immediately think of Urdu, courtesans, mm. you know, the city of Lucknow. And in a way, um, for me, it's interesting, exactly, not, not, not as a sort of a wanting to puncture anybody's, you know, um, narrative, but really it's interesting to see how languages and literary tastes changed even in the pre-colonial period, in the pre-modern period, that uh, 
um, yeah, I mean, Urdu was not popular until 1750 in this region and then became hugely popular. So popular, in fact, that it uh, kind of erased the memory of the earlier um, earlier tastes. And that's, in a way, how things go, rather than, oh, Urdu is, you know, we have to find some kind of... Uh, um, continuous ancient line and with Hindi also we have to confine a continuous ancient line that's to me seems not to be the way things work have worked um, on the other hand um, often in uh, in in literary history or as an accounts of this region already in the uh, on the early 20th century particularly when uh, uh, you know, communal or, you know, religious tensions, religious riots, uh, sort of wreck Indian cities, North Indian cities in the 1920s. Then this idea that, oh, uh, you know, sons, for example, somebody mm. like Kabir can, you know, embrace and speak in more than one idiom, uh, a Muslim, but who seems to speak in a Hindu idiom, that becomes a mm. A proof of uh, social harmony and for me that's uh, again too much of a simplification that actually is uh, um, is unhelpful because as uh, as Gramsci as other you know um, yeah. Raymond Williams and other scholars of culture have taught us I mean culture is always a domain of uh, of conflict of hierarchy of struggle not just yeah. of struggle but so um, you know, without, again, wanting to point, posit some kind of um, immemorial, you know, ancestral enmity between languages or between people, uh, I, I don't think one should also posit multilingualism necessarily as, um, you know, as a kind of embracing of an other, rather than, you know, different aspects, different um different tastes with different aspects of the self that could very well coexist with, I don't know, right. uh, you know, caste feelings with, uh, you know, enmities towards other communities, um, um, misogyny, you know, all kinds of, right. um, you know, all kinds of, um, you know, social, um, social attitudes. Uh, in fact, there's a very nice, uh, very interesting character in um, Rahima Sumraza's novel Topi Shukla, uh, his grandmother. So he's a Brahmin, but he comes from a kind of Urdu Persian educated household. And his mother, uh, Raza, tells us, you know, she loves Persian poetry and hates Muslim, hate Muslims. And I think that's quite important in the sense that you know one doesn't have to go not because you love Persian poetry, you have to have particular ideas about, you know, society or other communities. Um, yeah, I think that's quite useful to keep in mind. And uh, since we were talking about culture, uh, a very important change that comes uh, is uh, the colonial encounter beginning in the 19th century, I think. And that changes at least superficially a lot of things so can you just tell us briefly about what effects does colonialism have on the multilingual literary culture of Awadh in the 19th century and let's say in the 20th century as well yes yeah, so I'm, I mean this is uh, the topic of my fifth and last chapter and, mm -hmm. and basically I take a kind of position against 
something that I think I also embraced earlier, or a lot of us embraced earlier, this idea of the complete epistemic shift and uh, mm. in a way, you know, colonialism coming and changing everything and reshaping um, individuals and society and relationships completely. Now, of course, and, and, and what instead I try to posit that, of course, at the level of, you know, the basics, the institutions, you know, the printing press, associations, uh, you know, public education, um, ideas about language and literature, ideas about society, about progress. I mean, it, of course, colonialism has a huge impact, and, and I'm not going to deny that. But I think that we have perhaps, I mean, I think that one of the advantages of coming to colonialism from the pre, from um, the periods before it is that we can see the continuities and the kind of rearrangements of tastes instead of, you know, a complete epistemic shift. So, for example, you know, and, and I think particularly, and, and I, we have to, in a way, train our eye uh, a little bit away from, or, you know, to go beyond um, the innovations, the literary innovations that we always focus on. So the novel, the essay, you know, um, mm or, you know, the kind of the modern educated, English educated intellectual, and see kind of modernity just as a Indian modernity as a kind of translation from English. Um, I think if we train our eye and look at, um, at some of even fact of the key people, uh, like Bhartendu Harishchandra in Banares, if we look even at magazines, or if we look at theater, we see that actually a lot of the older tastes um, continue. They may coexist now with new tastes and coexist in attention. Uh, so I, th I find it very useful for the colonial period to look at, um, at contradictions, you know, people who say they're going to do one thing and then what they do mm. is something else. Or they say they're going to write in this language, but then other, you know, they ha you have to, Bartendu, we have to write in modern Hindi, but then all his poetry is in Brajbasha. His uh, his uh, plays are full of, uh, you know, Urdu and um, popular songs. He published a lot of popular songs. In fact, his output and that of Wajid Ali Shah, the last king of Avad, quite overlap in many ways in their taste for songs, in their taste for theatre. So then, you know, then this kind of um, neat narrative of replacement, you know, colonial modernity as a replacement, as a complete innovation, as a dichotomization, a kind of separation of Hindus and Muslims and Hindi and Urdu. You know, it's not that it's not true, but it's it gets complicated by by what people did and what people liked. And, uh, and in a way, theater and, of course, after it, cinema is a very good place to, to look. But also magazines, you know, magazines are a wonderful... Mm. Um, wonderful platform because you know a lot of new genres coexist with uh, the kind of celebration and the transmission of older, older tastes and older, you know, older figures. Yeah, and uh, Professor Osini, one thing that I was really fascinated by was uh, the kind of um, the emphasis on education that seems to be there. In, in the cultivation of literary tastes among these uh, multilingual writers and 
poets and so on which was there even before the colonial colonial encounter in the case of avad where you gave the example of a man who was trained in persian braj bhasha and all these so you were expected to be learned in these languages and then of course with the coming of english education uh, you get access to uh, um, literatures from europe um, in english and french and so on and another effect that this has is that with the setting up of schools and colleges you also have the emergence of a lot of publishing companies and houses in places like allahabad and lucknow and kanpur so so how how are we to understand the role that uh, education plays in in our conceptualization of world literature or uh, multilingual cultures yes so so education of course is one of the kind of uh, cornerstones of the imperial mission isn't it no is the idea that yeah, oh yeah. whatever we may be drawing from that society but we give them education now as scholars of um, and historians of education in india have pointed out um this kind of grand declarations uh were matched by actually very little um direct investment on the ground so mm-hmm. until i mean i think probably until after independence or probably even maybe even later you know english schools were very very few and far between and and expensive you know just uh, um i think a modern you know public education um colonial education remain more a kind of model um and of course the the colonial education system set itself up as the Uh, you know as the awarder of degrees and as the you know the inspection mm. but actually most of the schools were set up by you know local local individuals or local groups and so on and english was not a very great part of mm. education in uh, in north india apart from the you know the the college edu- college education in fact mm. um i mean as we know that's become you know that remained the kind of um, weakness of uh, education in india well until you know after independence that uh, there was an investment in higher education and less in primary education mm. so i think um the of course um universities and college education remained until the 1920s you know in you know largely in english or almost completely in english um but my point is that actually um very few people could could actually get there could get their degrees mm. and could uh, uh even somebody like prince and really got his degree you know all, many years after he had started working and um you mm. know uh he 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 only got it as an adult no his ba mm. um but in fact if we see if we look at magazines again I think we can see that Urdu magazines, Hindi magazines, I'm sure other ma- magazines in other languages in other parts of India do a lot of work. I think really magazines are a kind of supplement to education. Uh education is very limited in practice, but it's magazines that translate through from English through English and make um you know, make the world make modern knowledge make knowledge about the rest of the world and as part of it gradually also knowledge about um literatures of the world available mm. to um to to north indian readers certainly not um 
you know, and, and I think that's what I find quite interesting in a way is the, um, the difference that within the education system, English literature remains, you know, the pinnacle. That's the model, mm. the pinnacle. Poetry, mm. uh, you know, prose, um, fiction writing. And then you start seeing that in the magazines, you start getting French and Russian. And then, mm. uh, you know, particularly the wonderful, you know, translations of Miraji for Adabiudunia, which is a Lahori, Lahore publication, even Japanese and Chinese and, you know, um, um, Southeast Asian language. So, you know, really the, 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 the uh, horizon broadens much more than, uh, yeah, much more widely than Britain or even empire. Well, that, that sounds uh, very interesting. But Professor Osini, if I was just to uh, take you back to a little bit about the making of this book, uh, you seem to have, you know, consulted a lot of material from many different sources and you seem to also have conducted substantial fieldwork in Uttar Pradesh. How was the experience like How, as a literary historian? Uh, could you tell us maybe anecdotes or your experiences about uh, about the process of researching for this book? Yes, so I, I mean, I've been going to UP and to Allahabad for the last 38 years. So <laughs> this book came after, you know, a lot of familiarity, certainly with, uh, you know, with the city of Allahabad, some with Benares, uh, Lucknow and, and the libraries there. But in a way, this book which uh, takes me back much further back than my previous books uh, than my previous research um, also involved um, as you say more field work field work in I can't claim to have gone to you know all the kasbas that I that I write about but certainly the journeys to uh, Jayas and the and the trips to uh, to Jayas and to Kara were very um, very evocative and and very um, very instructive in a way that, um, if, for example, when we when I went to Jaius with with friends, you know, we went there and it looked like a, you know, there was a, a street of shops like any other <laughs> sort of North Indian town, and uh, and I thought, okay, how do I find Jaius in here? Um, but then through a friend, actually, um, one of our, you know the friends with me, Sarah Rai, she called somebody, a friend of hers in Lucknow who knew somebody in Jaius who actually ran a petrol pump. And first, you know, he saw this motley group of people there and he was, you know, he made us sit there and looked at us for a, for quite a while, you know, whether she should take us seriously or not. <laughs> and then he said, okay, come with me. And then we went beyond past this street of shops and we climbed up a hill and, you know, from the top of the hill, actually, there's just the foundations of what is said to be Jaisi's house. But several of the other houses, you know, they have this thin Lakori um, bricks that clearly, you know, are centuries old with centuries old doors. And uh, and also from the top, you could see the remnants of the, uh, of the walls with the various ramparts and the various towers that occur in the description of... Um, um, of the well, a transposed description of the city, I think, in Jaisis Kanhavat, and also all the all the sarovar, you know, all the ponds outside. So 
Um, and also, for example, from there we went to Ameti nearby, which is really close by, about, I don't know, 20 kilometers or maybe less, where is actually the tomb of Jayasi is. Uh, mm. And, you know, the stories, and again, you think, oh, this is a story and it's made, you know, it's just trying cleverly to link things together. But there's a story that Jayasi used to go to the Darbar of the local Raja of Ameti and he was, you know, he would come and go. And and then this local history of Jayas says that he was buried there. And there he was buried there, you know, really close to the site mm. of, of the palace. So, um, you know, I think... If you go, maybe at first you are struck by the difference or the lack or, you know, how you can't see what's there in the text. But then, you know, if you're lucky, I suppose, if, you, um, mm. if you're patient, if you, you know, try to get this vision um, and try to find some references, of course, not in terms of direct reflection, but, but, but a sense of the... Um, that this, you know, there there is some correspondence between texts and space, which, uh, um, yeah, has been really, really important for me. Of course, I didn't visit any, you know, modern brick fort. They were pulled down by the British when they pacified mm-hmm. Avad. But you know, uh, you start mm-hmm. trusting, I suppose, some of the descriptions in the texts uh, more as well. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, uh, so. Sorry, maybe maybe if I should also just say, uh, so this pro- this book came out of two projects, but the earlier project, which was really a uh, how to you know a collective project on how to do multilingual literary history, and and people um, who came uh, part of this project worked on all over Kano North and Central India, but I tried to keep you know throughout the three years of that project and five years of the other project, I tried to keep my focus on texts from this region, from different languages, and particularly texts or genres that um, either gave a sense of space, so local histories, for example, or descriptive poems, um, or that were in some way multilingual. So then, you know, little little by little, and of course there are huge, you know, it's not a, it's not a comprehensive history, by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, little by little, sort of bits came together, and uh, and and I tried to find links across languages, uh, links between people, um, find out what they read and what their tastes were and what their education was, and and so you know, yes, the the book slowly came together. Uh, we are so glad that it kind of sustained. Uh, engagement with the space of Avad, uh, you know, we re- really see that come out evocatively in the book. And so if I were just to ask you, uh, where do you think world literature as a field of study, if I may, stands today and how would you like it to develop or to what um, context would you like it to become sensitive? Yes, yeah, so I mean, I think it's already changed quite a bit compared to how it was, you know, 10, 10 15 years ago. I mean, maybe in uh, university courses, you still get taught, uh, you know, as theorists of world literature, the same uh, three people, you know, Moretti, Casanova, and Damrosh. But I think now, in terms mm-hmm. of, 
approaches toward literature. I mean, um, I will mention again the, the series of Cambridge studies in world literature that I co-edit with Devjani Ganguly. And, and there, you know, and I really like, as I said, her, her definition of world literature as an optics and as a ground for conversation. So I think what for me, you know, and in this case of my book, of course, it was very much about grounding it, saying, well, mm. literature cannot be just, uh, you know, systems and global circulation. It has to be located from in a particular, it has to be, has to have layers and, and complexity. Mm. Otherwise, it's not worth having. Other other interesting work that has been done at the moment is between neighborly traditions. So Levi Thompson's book on mm. Persian and Arabic modernism, for example, or mm. on, um, uh, you know, the, again, some kind of non, um, a complex sense of literary temporality. So there's a book, another book coming out in the series uh, by uh, Samuel Hodgkin on, on Persianate, on the on Persian tastes in the kind of Eastern Bloc, so Soviet Union, you know, the communist writers mm. who came with a Persianate, mm. uh, um, a Persianate education and background and sens literary sensibility and transformed it. So didn't, you know, jettison it, mm. throw it all away, uh, but, but transformed it. So then we have many different ways of doing world literature. And I think we who work on, uh, you know, parts of different you know, parts of the world beyond Europe, parts of the world that would seem peripheral or languages that don't have such a big global uh, footprint, uh, I think we can still um, find, in fact, interesting ways of, um, of, um, con of, of look looking for connections, looking for uh, particular views, looking for what are the take, what are the genres that are locally significant, um, mm. and so on and so forth. I think uh, there's a lot of scope for me, particularly to think about kind of what you could call south-south connections or connections mm. that do not go via the you know via Europe or via via the West, but, you know, and of course the work that historians have done on the Indian Ocean, for example, or on, hmm. yeah, the Persianate world, or, I mean, I think there's a lot of East Asia, you know, there's a lot of, um, I think uh, probably, and, and that's where my term significant geographies comes in, you know, probably scales and connections that are not, you know, global in a, you know, you know, in a full sense of the world, like everywhere and dominant and so on, it mm. may, they may be actually quite um, subterranean or quite, um, mm. you know, coexist with other trajectories. But but there are in interesting stories to be told. In one of the um, um, special issues that are co-edited, um, uh, in this case with Letizia Zacchini, there's a wonderful uh, uh, article by Melanie Bourlet on Pular literature, Pular Wolof, you know, from Eastern Africa, mm -hmm. and how, what is, what is location and what is world for Pular literature, where is really the, the investment that people put in keeping these books, in finding them. They don't really want to, you know, achieve um, kind of uh, fame uh, by trans getting the books translated. For them, 
popular books are ways of gathering a community, gathering a community, for example, in France or in Russia or in the Middle East, wherever people have gone, have migrated for, for work. So, you know, then obviously the world in Pular literature or in Swahili literature is very different from the world in, you know, English or, or German. Mm. But, you know, I think we are, um, you know, we are the richer. And if we attend to these different stories, that's a kind of sense, thick sense of the world that I, that I like. Mm. Well, uh, Professor Osini, we have already taken up a lot of your time. Uh, but if you would like to suggest or recommend any book to our listeners that you really like or that you really look up to, and if you could tell us any projects that you are working on currently, I mean, we got a sense of that, but yeah, if you could. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of books, I think for world literature, for me, uh, the Cambridge History of World Literature, edited by Devjani Ganguly, is really the you know the best that is there out there. And in fact, yeah. precisely because it showcases the many different ways that you can do world literature, and and why it's actually important for people like us uh, who otherwise may feel quite alienated by the you know global anglophone to be part of world literature and to look out and collaborate with others and and find interesting projects. Um, another book that I've really, um, uh, you know, admired and enjoyed, and I think is very evocative and very original, um, is Ronit Rich's um, um, second book. I mean, Islam Translated, of course, was very, um, has been very influential as well. Um, but her second book, called Banishment and Belonging on uh, mm. uh, the Malay diaspora in uh, in Sri Lanka. Again, it's that kind of, you know, uh, surprising and interestingly layered and complex uh, set of narratives and set of meanings, you know, the idea that Sri, Sri Lanka, Ceylon is important to Malays, um, but also that it has more than one, there's already more than one word, more than one tradition, more than one, you know, um, layer to it uh, already shows how things are, uh, you know, how it, it pays it pays to pay attention to the layers and the and the different strands. Um, and really, I think all the books in the in the Cambridge Studies of World Literature um, in World Literature so far have been, you know, really I think quite pathbreaking. You know, there's Duncan Yoon on. China in African, the African literary imagination, um, uh, as I said, Levi Thompson, Samuel Hodgkin, Juan Cantor on Latin America and South Asia. You know, so this making these yeah. connections, drawing these things together, drawing literatures together beyond, you know, the the, the paths that, um, yeah, a certain kind of Eurocentric um, comparatism uh, has sort of pushed us in. And my current project is on magazines. So again, it's on uh, magazines in uh, magazines and world literature, but trying to bring together the languages I can work with. So Hindi or Hindi Urdu, um, German and Italian. So that I'm starting that project now. Okay. Well, that, that sounds very interesting and we wish you all the best with that. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today for this podcast and, uh, Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for your questions, uh, Khalid, and thank you all for listening.